Welcome to the Renaissance Podcast, and thank you for joining with us to worship and learn more about God. We are so excited to have you be a part of this week's service. For more podcasts and services from past weeks, or to join us online on Sunday mornings, check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Now, enjoy the message. Good morning, everyone. How are you all? <laughs> well, it's so great to be with all of you. Welcome. Um, welcome to Renaissance Christmas. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And as you can tell already, we're calling our Christmas series that we're starting today, Messy Christmas. And even on the stage here, you can see some of the gifts are unwrapped and there's paper everywhere. It looks a lot like my house on the day of Christmas morning or something like that. Um, and what I was thinking is just that Christmas for a lot of us is just, um, even though we admit it should be filled with joy and peace and all of the things, right? We were singing joy to the world earlier. It is um, sometimes a trying time for many of us. You don't have to raise your hand, right? But all of us have some challenges in the Christmas season. And, and Christmas is messy. And what I wanted to talk about this, this uh, Christmas season is that it's it's... It's okay to address some of those, the messy things in our lives. Um, I think what the church has done far too long is we've created this um, idea that somehow you have to have it all together to like, because you're following Jesus. It's that stiff upper lip mentality. Like if you're a Christian, everything should be fine, even when it's not fine. So if it's not fine, you just fake it till you make it kind of thing. And you, and you get this sort of false idea that you're living this duplicitous life because you're trying to put on this veneer of something or someone who has it all figured out, right? Please tell me I'm not the only one who thinks this, right? And everyone else is like, like you know what I mean? Like you're just trying to put it on. For, and I'm just saying, pff, let's just admit that sometimes Christmas time is trying. It's sometimes hard. Sometimes joy, not to be a downer, seems fleeting to us. And yet there's a real reason for joy in our season, and that is Jesus Christ, what we've been singing about, right? That the babe has come in a manger, and right, our king has come. So we're going to talk about that these next few weeks, but, but I want to talk about the, the messiness of Christmas. Like, like what about a Christmas day when you're going to have the, the, peop, the family over, right? If you haven't already fired your whole family from Thanksgiving, right? right? You're going to have the family back again or whatever, and you're going to gather, and you're like, oh, not again. Uncle so-and-so's back or whatever. So messy relationships and family relationships is one thing we have to work through at this Christmas season. Um, there, we live in a messy world, okay? We do. And, and, but this Christmas season, God wants to talk to us about the hope that is in Jesus Christ, in the midst of our messy world. And he wants us to, to see that. And we have this God-given opportunity every Christmas season to remind ourselves of that. So we have messy families. We have a messy world that we're living in. But, and then also, I want to just, this last week of the series, I want to talk about the, even the messiness of our lives. God can still come and, quote-unquote, bless this mess. Yeah? That God can still come and do some, some great things in our lives. And so that's the grand scheme of where we're headed these next few weeks. So I'm glad you guys have come and joined in on week one. Um, again, know this at this Christmas season that there is a lot of turmoil that many of us are going through. It is messy, right? And just because the holidays come doesn't mean that that stops in our lives. And so as the next few weeks go through, we're going to talk about that. There's a uh, psychologist in Los Angeles. His name is Leonard Felder. And he said this, that he has found that three quarters of Americans, so like three quarters, 75% of the people, even in this room, have at least one family member that they just can't stand. Right now, if you're thinking right now, I'm like, I wonder if, okay. And if you can't think of someone you don't like, 
Tag, you're it. You're the one that people don't like. I'm just saying, that's probably you. Um, and that, that's, that's true. Uh, Janle Van Zant, um, self-help guru, author, speaker, motivational person, says this, that family is supposed to be our safe haven, but very often it's the place where we find the deepest heartache. And it's just true for so many of us. And so um, as I was preparing for this series, I was reading the Christmas story, Luke chapter 2, reading some of the birth stories and, and Matthew. Um, and I was just thinking uh, of family dynamics in the story. And we're going to read a little bit about some of that even this week. I was, I was reading these stories. I became frustrated, if I could be honest with you, with how, uh, in my estimation, Joseph's family and Mary's family treated them in this story. Now, I'm just caveat, I'm throwing this out there. I'm going to be coloring in between the lines of the Bible. And I know we have permission to do that, but I'm telling you, it's okay to do that. But I'm telling you how I was very frustrated with how what I perceived to be a, a shunning of Joseph and Mary. And I'm going to talk about that in just a little bit of their family and how, how I began to like apply that even to my own life and how some of the own, my own family members or some of the, the people, my, my wife and her family or whatever, all the fi family dynamics that we have. And I began to lay into scripture like this, this heartfelt feeling that I had, and I was getting really frustrated as I was reading the story. So let's take a look at the passage that I want to read together. It's in Luke chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. And um, again, we're going to spend some time talking about um, how I felt Joseph's and Mary's parents or families treated them. So starting here in verse 4 of chapter 2, it says this. And so it says, Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and of the lineage of David. And he went to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, his wife, fiance thing. It's kind of weird, but it, it, they're married, but they just haven't consummated the marriage because she's pregnant, long story, she's with child. Verse six, and while they were there, it says the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and his name was... Yeah, that's right. The answer is always Jesus. I'm just telling you right there. Uh, if you're at Renaissance and I ask the question, the answer is Jesus. So she gave birth to her firstborn son, Jesus, and she wrapped him in swaddling cloths and she laid him in a manger because there was no place for them. There's no room for them in the inn. So in between the lines there, I see some family dynamics going on and I'm going to, I want you to see it too. So let's pray together and see what God can show us. Lord, thank you for our time together. You're so good. Gosh, as we were worshiping even yet this morning, uh, hailing King Jesus, it just felt so appropriate at the Christmas season to be mindful of that. So Lord, we surrender to you, to your will for our lives and your understanding of all things. And so God, we ask that you would help us this morning to understand um, and see things the way you see them. So we're asking, Lord, that you would open our eyes and we could see people the way you see them and that you'd open our ears and we could hear others. Uh, the way they intend to be heard, Lord. And so we ask for these things, that the Spirit of God would be here and would help us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. So in the U.S., you guys are probably familiar with something called Southern hospitality. I know, I know we're Northerners, but any of you people from the South, you know about it. Or at least you've seen it on those Hallmark TV shows that you're going to watch at Christmas season. Um, but it's, it's basically the Southern hospitality would be this. It's showing kindness and graciousness and warmth to other people, right? Especially visitors when they come to your home. 
And to not show this Southern hospitality was akin to like breaking the law, so to speak. Like everyone had to be kind. You just, that's just how my mama raised me. It's how my grandmama raised me or whatever. You just were kind to people even when they interrupted your day, right? You just showed kindness and graciousness towards them. And in the Bible, we also read a lot about hospitality. They don't call it Southern hospitality, obviously, but there's a lot of that in there, especially in the ancient Orient, the East over there. They had lots of unwritten and written rules about hospitality towards strangers and the sojourner, the traveler amongst them. There's a story in Genesis chapter 18. You can read about it on your own time, but Abraham, you might know his name, he was visited by three different strangers, and it says he was sitting outside of his tent in the heat of the day. So this is the hot part of the day. He's just kind of underneath the, the tree right by the tent, and these three strangers come up, and he gets up immediately, and he pleads with them to please stop and to rest in the shade while I prepare a snack for you. And he runs in and tells his wife, Sarah, make some cookies or some bread things and whatever. And so she's making that. And while he, there, she's baking little bread cakes, he's running to a servant out in the field and tells him to grab a, a lamb, right, and slaughter it right now and prepare it and cook it and do all of this work while these strangers are waiting in the shade. And this, this hospitality uh, sort of culture exists in the Old Testament for sure. But also exists in the New Testament as well. You remember a story in, in I think, Luke chapter 7. Jesus goes to a, a, leader, a religious leader's house, and he's invited into this house. And there's a, a, a sinful woman. Some people call her a prostitute. doesn't matter. But she's got some sinful condition that everyone knows about in town. And this sinful woman comes to Jesus in this Pharisee's house. And with tears streaming from her face and with her hair, she's washing his feet, right? And you remember the religious leader says, Jesus, if you knew what kind of woman this was, you would rebuke her. And Jesus, you know, calling upon the customs of hospitality says, listen, bro, my words, not his. He says, ever since I've come into this house, you, you've not, you've not um, met me with a kiss and she's not stopped kissing my feet. You've not offered to wash my feet from the road. Right. And she can't stop washing my feet with her tears. And so so Jesus rebukes this religious leader for not showing some type of hospitality. And it seems strange to us, maybe, but it was the custom in their culture. And so when we read the story, this Christmas story, and I want to go back to verse seven here. It says she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in swathing cloths and she laid him in a little feeding trough. That's what a manger is. And she did this. Why? Because there was no place for them in the inn. You see that line? And that's the problem I had with this story. We know that the innkeeper probably did his or her best to find place for them, but there was just no space for them. So we sometimes give the innkeeper, innkeeper rather, a hard time. We shouldn't, right? But I kept thinking to myself, isn't this Joseph's hometown? Like he maybe wasn't born there, but for sure he's got like aunts and uncles or somebody of the family there. And he brings his heavily, wrong word, very pregnant wife. <laughs> okay, you missed it. All right, good. So very pregnant wife to this. And, I, and, right, and they're looking for a place to stay. And none of the family members invite them in to stay. Do you see that? Now, I'm coloring between the lines. Just, you know, you don't have to go there if you don't want to. That's fine. But this is the story I see. And I got so frustrated. The question I was asking myself, why did they have to go to a motel in the first place? Why didn't the uncle or the aunt just invite them in? Why didn't Joseph's family make room for them? And immediately I, I began to say things like this. Well, we all know the answer. We know why the family didn't. 
because families are the worst. Well, and the best sometimes. But they're judgmental, they're hypercritical, and hypocrites all at the same time. And you can almost picture Joseph bringing his fiance who's pregnant and they're saying that they're not married yet because they can't you know consummate because she's already pregnant by someone else or whatever and they're like what is this about and if you know the story in Matthew in the birth story that Joseph actually when he found out Mary is pregnant he was going to divorce her quietly his family was probably encouraging him you should just get rid of her she's obviously not been faithful to you but an angel comes to Joseph in a dream and tells him not to divorce her, but to keep her. And so they know the story that, that Mary's run off, went to her cousin's house, and she comes back from Elizabeth's house. She's pregnant. Can we stay with you, Uncle So-and-so? Can we stay? And they're like, nope. You ain't bringing that shame into my house. You're not bringing whatever you guys got going on, whatever crazy relationship you guys have. You're not, right, you see this? And so I'm reading the story, and I'm thinking about all of this, and I became very judgmental of them. I felt that Joseph and Mary were shunned because of this unwed pregnancy and the shame that it brought to their family. Yeah, they're not going to believe the story that an angel Gabriel came. They're not going to believe all of that stuff. They just, just, they just see what's happening and people are going to talk and we don't want to deal with that. And so they just pushed them down the street to the motel. And yet, verse 6, it says, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth and she gave birth to Jesus. Now, Jesus, when he came to the earth, he came to the world as Savior. One of the most famous verses in Scripture is John chapter 3, verse 16. I didn't even give it to him to put up on the screen, but it's, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and that whoever would believe in him, him would have eternal life. You know that passage. So Jesus obviously came as the Savior to the world. But during his human life, and I need you to catch this, that he came specifically to the people of Israel. And in any culture on earth that should have been able to recognize the Messiah, that should have been able to recognize God's anointed one during his hu human life, it should have been God's chosen people. They had been given God's words. They'd been given God's prophecies about the, the coming of the Messiah, that he'd be of the lineage of David. They knew all the things. And they've been oppressed by Rome and other people. They were looking for a savior, much like God's people in Egypt when they were enslaved there. They were crying to God continually, please save us, God. Save us from our oppressors. And if there's anyone on the earth that should have been looking to receive the Messiah, Jesus Christ, it should have been God's people. And yet he was rejected by them. He was hated by them. And he was eventually killed as they cried for his own crucifixion. The one group of people that should have welcomed him were the ones who called for his death. John chapter 1 verse 11 says this, that he, Jesus, came to his own people and his own people did not even receive him. Jesus, like Joseph and Mary, was shunned too. And so, as we were preparing for this Christmas series, this is the, the bookmark that I placed in. This is the, the holder in my series. I'm going to talk about how families are tough. And at Christmas time, you have to just deal with messy families. And so I put all of this together, right? And you guys can see where I'm going with this, right? Yes, yes. And you're like even amening with me. Yes, they are the worst sometimes, right? But, but okay, but here's what happened. And this is, this is confession to you. And I doubt there are many people who will stand before you and say what I'm about to say to you. Are you paying attention now? <laughs> But as I read the Bible, I realized I was wrong. As I really began to study this passage, I realized I had been mistaken 
and I was, I was um, judging Joseph's and Mary's families too harshly. And it made me wonder if we don't do the same thing even with some of our own family when we're mistaken. So now to get to that closing remark, I've got some work to do. So please stay with me. This is for, for the nerds in the room. You're going to love what happens next. For everyone else, just check your phone for the next 10 minutes. So I don't know if Twitter's still a thing or not, but you can check, check that. Um, anyways, so um, all of this comes down to uh, an understanding of this passage that we just read in Luke chapter 2, right? And it all comes down to a translation of one word in this story, and it's the word in. I've been saying motel, but there was no room for them in the inn. You guys know the story. So we've grown up hearing the account that the inn in Bethlehem was full. There was no room, quote unquote, available for them. So Joseph and Mary ended up in a stable. This is the nativity scene that we all have on our mantles at home, right? And we see Christ born, the little baby Jesus laid in a manger. And the image has been used to promote this typical Christmas that we're familiar with, whatever, whatever. And yet, what I'm going to tell you, the careful analysis of the biblical text reveals a different story. All right, here we go, nerds. Let's go. So it says this, uh, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, right? It wouldn't surprise you that they didn't write in English back then, right? We all agree with that. And Luke would have written his account of Jesus' birth in Greek as well. And the word that is translated as in or motel or whatever is a Greek word. I'm not a Greek scholar, so I'm just repeating things that I studied. But it's the Greek word kataluma, kataluma. And kataluma means a resting place or a guest room. And so you could sort of see why someone would translate that into English as in. In fact, this idea that it's a guest room was actually used by Luke himself later in his gospel. In Luke 22, he tells the story of Jesus on the week of Passion Week, and he's going to celebrate the Passover meal with his disciples. He tells his disciples to go look for a place where they might share the Passover meal. And he says, go walk into the city and you're going to see a man carrying a jar. It's very cryptic. It's weird. He's like, go see a guy carrying a jar. And when you see the guy carrying the jar, ask him if he's got a room for us. And look what he says here in Luke chapter 22, verse 11. And he goes, and tell the master of the house that the teacher, Jesus, says to you, where is the guest room? Kataluma. That's the word. Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He didn't. He uses the same word that he uses in the birth story. Are you catching this? That is translated as inn or motel in the birth story, but here it's just translated as guest room. So I began to think to myself, well, maybe it didn't, didn't really mean inn, okay? I'm not super smart, guys, and I'm not, I'm not standing alone in this. There's, there's research and scholars who agree with the thing that I just learned this week, okay? So I'm not trying to convince you of it, and I don't care if you believe it or not, but for me, it just helped me understand something just a little bit differently. We know that, that motels or hotels or whatever are typically in cities that are on major routes. You guys know Bethlehem's just some podunk little town off the beaten path. It's like, here we go, Cerro Gordo. <laughs> Welcome to Renaissance. I love Cerro Gordo, but it's the kicking joke around here. So it's, it's that thing. So there's no hotels in Bethlehem. It's the idea, right? It, there's no hotels or motels. And so, and here's the, here's the kicker, and this is what like sold me on this idea. There was, there is a Greek word for motel or inn. There is one. And Luke uses it in another part of his story. He didn't use it in the beginning of Jesus' birth. Look at this in uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 34. This is the story of the Good Samaritan, 
right? Where the man is beat up and left for dead and a priest walks by and Levi, Levite walks by. And no one wants to help him, but a Samaritan, the enemy of God's people, stops to help him and he binds up his wounds. Look at this in 1034. It says that he went up, the Samaritan went up and bound his wounds and he put oil and wine like medicine on his wounds and he set him on his own animal and he brought him to an inn, a hotel, a different Greek word. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. <laughs> okay. And he took care of him there. So there was a Greek word for motel. There was a Greek word for inn, and Luke didn't use it in Luke chapter 2. So Wycliffe, or whoever translated it into English the first time, he chose the word inn. The King James version, version kept the word inn, and many other English translations kept the word inn. But when I look at it now, I see this. And this is, are you ready for this? This is the nerdy part. I think his family, Joseph's family, did invite them into the house. I think they did. But the guest room was full because there's already other visitors in the house because they'd come for the census as well. And so in those ancient homes, you have to understand this. There was, there was the, the front door, if you will, and kind of single room or two room homes. There's the, the front door and a little place right inside. Then there's a, a little upper area where the family lived. And then a second guest room. If guests or visitors were there because they were highly charitable, right? They had that Southern hospitality going for them. That if guests would stop by, they would put them in that room. That room was full. And so what they did is they cleaned out the front area where the, where the animals typically typically came in every night to keep them warm and to keep them from getting eaten by other animals and keep them safe. And they swept out this little area and they let Joseph and Mary have that place because it was less crowded. It was quieter. And the reason there's a, a feeding trough there or a manger there is because that's where the animals would come in at night. All right. Now you see the story differently. All right. I just hope you do. And if you don't like skip this whole week and come back next week, it'll be fine. And we're not, we're not going to build on one another, but here's what I want you to see. When I studied the scriptures and I saw what I think is right, it changed my opinion on something. And I just want us to be people. And I, I'm, I sat with a friend of mine this week over coffee and I told him what I was about to do today to like apologize. This is not an apology, but to say I blew it and the Bible corrected me. And he says, Jeff, you have no idea how many people would never stand up on a stage and say that. So I'm telling you that I was, I was judging some people. Now, there are people I don't know, Mary and Joseph's family. Who cares, right? But immediately in my mind, I, I went to, I, I, and I said to myself, I said, Jeff, you do that all the time in people in your real life. And the, and the Bible needs to speak to those stories, too. Are you at all with me at all? Oh, please be with me. Because I don't have anything else to say. <laughs> This is it. This is all I got. <laughs> and I, I went to scripture. I wasn't even open-minded, guys. Like I had it cemented in my mind what happened. And, and like in my studies, it like, poof, the Lord just changed my heart in it. So all that to say, this Christmas season, yes, families can be messy, right? But God can change our hearts in this stuff. He can help us to see things a little differently. I wonder how much in our lives we miss, pun intended, because of misunderstandings. Missed job opportunities, maybe? You ever gone out to lunch with someone and they just start asking questions about your job and you go, that's kind of weird. They're like asking you to come work with them. That's what they're saying. They're just not brave enough to do so. You ever have those opportunities? If I ever take you lunch and ask you about your job, I'm asking you to come work at the church. I'm just telling you right now. Okay, Isaac, write that down. 
So anyways, there's missed job opportunities, missed relationships, as we've already discussed. There's missed life. Like how much life are we missing because of misunderstandings? Like real eternal life, like in Jesus Christ. I want to finish up. I saw some time here, but with a couple verses that can show us that that if you have a misunderstanding of even who Jesus is, you'll miss everything in your life. And there's a, a passage in John chapter 6. It's a, one of the longest chapters in all of Scripture, and it's a fascinating chapter to me. Jesus is talking about the bread of life, such a kind of strange metaphor. And he's talking about himself, Jesus, being bread of life. Which is why um, I think this whole gluten thing is made up. Because Jesus is the bread of life and, right, if you're Atkins, sorry, you're doing it wrong. Because Jesus is bread and you're supposed to eat bread. I'm just telling you. But he's walking through the, the narrative of the Exodus where God's people were leaving Egypt and going into the promised land. And God was feeding his people through manna. You've heard of this manna, this like cloudy or this flaky stuff that fell from the sky. They called it manna and it was like a bread substance. They would make cakes from it and bake it or, or whatever, fry it and eat it. And that's how God provided food for them for 40 years in the desert. Jesus points to that story and he says, I am the bread that comes from heaven. Right? And he's kind of, you see this? He's like, like, if you're looking for something to give sustenance to your life, it's me. He's what he's saying. But there were some religious leaders, some Pharisees amongst him who just couldn't put their brain around that idea. And they asked questions like, is he asking us to eat his body? Like, this is the strangest thing ever. And in fact, a lot of disciples were following Jesus at this time. And Jesus even tells them, so many of you are just following me because I feed you. You know, five loaves, two fish. He does this miraculous thing and people just keep gathering around because he's feeding them. And he's like, you're, you're, you're working for food that's going to spoil. You need food that will never perish. You need a bread that lasts forever. I am the bread that comes from heaven, he says. And, and the Pharisees are like, is he asking us to eat his body? Talk about a misunderstanding, Right. But look how they got there. Look in John chapter 6, verse 54. This is the Edward Cullen verse of the Bible. If you know, you know. He says this. <laughs> Anyone? <laughs> I just watched the whole series for the first time ever. I am Team Jacob. Just throwing it out there. Team. Let's go. And if you don't know, it's all right. You, Jesus still loves you. Jesus still loves you. Jesus says these words in John chapter 6, verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood <laughs> has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What in the world? John Piper says this. He says, for Jesus, eating is believing. Drinking is believing. That Jesus promises eternal life to those who believe in him. Believe in what would be the question. To believe that Jesus' death and the breaking of his body and the spilling of his blood, that it pays in full the penalty of our sins. And that his perfect righteousness is freely given to us in exchange for our unrighteousness. And believing this is how we eat Jesus' flesh and drink Jesus' blood. And we participated in that even this morning. And I wish I could say I was smart enough to put all this together on Communion Sunday. That just happens because God's awesome. Amen? Amen? 
But see, because of that misunderstanding, some of the Jewish people, the people that the Messiah Jesus came to, they shunned him. And it says in John chapter 6, verse 66, 666, that's how I remember it. It says many of the people that were following Jesus left him that day. They, they, they said this teaching is too hard for us. They couldn't come to the understanding of what's happening. I think that happens in other times in Jesus' life. If you know the story of Jesus coming into Jerusalem during Passion Week, that he rides in on a donkey, if you know this story, and they're all shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, come save us, all of this stuff, and Jesus rides in on a donkey. It's an a, a animal of humility and meekness, humbleness, and all the people who were thinking Jesus was going to be this warrior that's going to come in and overthrow the enemy Rome, they expected him to come in on a, a warrior steed, a horse, not a donkey, and so within seven days, those same people that were crying Hosanna turned their backs to him and were now crying crucify him. Because why? They had a misunderstanding. They were missing what God was doing. And it happens in our own life sometimes. I have this conversation with people all the time. I have a lot of friends who are, aren't believers. You guys have friends who aren't Christians? If you don't, go get some. They're a blast. I'm just telling you right now. <laughs> They're probably a whole lot more fun than your Christian friends. I'm just telling you. <laughs> I'm not saying do the things they do. They're just a lot of fun. So yeah, it, it, they would say things to me like, man, if, if God's real or whatever, like Jeff, you're a Christian, and it works for you, huh, right? You know the people like this? Here's what I'm, I'm, I'm banking on, Jeff. It's like, you know, at the end of my days, if there is a God, and it always starts like if, if there's a God, that at the end of my days, and I'll just hope that I've been more good than bad, Right? that I've been charitable, I've been kind, I recycle, right? When they ring that bell outside of Kroger, or is it Kroger's? You put an S on it here. It's Kroger's. When they ring that bell, I'll put some money in the little kettle thing. And, and I'm hoping that I'll, I'll be, here's the issue I always tell my friends. I said, you're comparing yourself to other people. And honestly, you're comparing yourself to other people that are pretty bad, like your neighbor Bob, who yells at his kids in the street, never mows his grass. That's what you're comparing yourself to. You need to compare yourself to Jesus, the perfect one. The perfect one who fulfilled every law. I mean, never sinned ever. And now, now ask yourself, were you good? Because if you break one law, you're a criminal. If you sinned once, you're a sinner. And, and to try to outweigh the, the bad things you've done in your life with good is just futile work. Think of how much you miss everything if you, if you bank on that. If you have a misunderstanding of what Jesus has come for, if you think he's just a good moral teacher, if, if you think right, he's just an example for us, listen, he is the sacrifice for us that we all have fallen short. We all sin against God. And the Bible tells us because we've sinned against God, we are due the penalty of eternal death. And Jesus, hail King Jesus, he places his life as a ransom for ours. So on the cross, he dies a death that he doesn't deserve, right? And three days later, he's, he's buried. Three days later, he's raised from the, from the dead. And our hope in him gives us the same thing. You miss so much if you have a misunderstanding of who Jesus is. You miss so much if you have a misunderstanding of some of the same people in your family. And I'll close with this. People do really bad things sometimes, and it hurts you. It's hurt me, right? 
And I've, I've oftentimes, and I'm not the best at this, but I've, I've gone back to them sometimes and talked to them about it. And when they begin to explain to me why they did the thing that they did or didn't do the thing that I thought they should do, and I begin to see it from their perspective, I begin to realize, oh, I could, oh, okay. I could see why you did that. And then all of a sudden, the, the misunderstanding and the chasm that was between us, it like melts or it fills up and we're, we're restored. Are you catching this? So when I was thinking about Joseph's family and Mary's family and how they shunned them and how frustrating that must have been to them, and I got all into that. I started thinking of my own family and some of the, my closest friends that I, whatever, and I'm just don't, you don't talk to them because they did this or they didn't do this and you get frustrated. And I'm like, Lord, this is the strangest thing. Why, why are relationships with people like this? And the, and the, and, and the Lord reminded me, he's like, Jeff, this Christmas season, like we have, you're getting an opportunity to, to reconcile with so many people in your life. <laughs> like you don't even have to go to them because they're coming on Christmas Eve. Knock, knock, and there they are. And you get an opportunity to, to show Southern hospitality, if you will, graciousness, compassion, and kindness to others. And then my hope would be in that, in, in that, then conversations would start and you'd begin to realize, wow, I had that wrong the whole time. Here's one thing I know about the devil, Satan, is he loves to destroy relationships and he'll sometimes twist truth just enough to destroy things. And we get opportunities all the time to restore those things if we just bring them into the light. So I just wanna pray for us as I close here and, um, and use this Christmas season really just as a reminder that, that God is gonna bring people to you and some of, some of you already go, I don't want to deal with those people. And I know you don't. I know you don't, man. I know you don't. But you need to see that person through Jesus' eyes. You need to see that person through the uh, eyes of Christ and how much compassion and love that he has for them. I'm not trying to be your therapist here. I'm trying to help. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. And if there's, if there's someone in the world who's going to lead the charge on giving forgiveness when forgiveness isn't asked for, it's the Christian. It should be the church. They haven't even said they're sorry to me, Jeff. I know. I understand. <laughs> while, while we were yet sinners, right, at, at enmity with God himself, Christ died for us. While we were still living our own way in opposition to everything that God had and all of his love for us, Christ died for us. And, and we, can, we can die a little bit, if you will, in the way of Christ and, and to forgive, be charitable and compassionate to others. And you, you don't know the freedom that it might give someone else on the other side. And it's quite possible, well, I could take the word quite possible out of that sentence. Is 100% likely, right, that you also have wounded someone else and you don't even know it either. And maybe they're going to forgive you this Christmas. So, Lord, help us. Let's pray. God, thank you for our time this morning. The, the babe in a manger. What a, an incredible story. And uh, it has 
implications in our life further than we could possibly even imagine. It goes beyond just Christmas carols and presents and all of that, but it, it, it speaks to eternal life. It speaks to the hope of the nations. It speaks to the plans of God being manifest on the earth. It speaks to a, a God who's willing to give everything, the, the highest price to win back his beloved, the people. And God, sometimes we won't even lift up a phone to call others. So God, I'm just asking God that you would just soften our hearts this Christmas season for those that have been pushed out. And, and they probably deserve to be <laughs> uninvited to Christmas. But God, we deserve to be uninvited to eternal life. And yet your great compassion speaks louder than even our own actions. So Lord, we just thank you for that. Father, I pray there would be no shame. There'd be no condemnation in our room right now, that in our minds, that we wouldn't feel guilty for any of this stuff, but you and your loving kindness would just reveal things to us so that we might change them. You're not trying to shame us or embarrass us. You're just trying to say, I want you to do this here. I want you to speak to this person this Christmas season. I want you to re-invite them to the holidays. I want you to be like my son, Jesus. So God, I'm asking that you would give us the strength to do so. That this can't come from our own um, will, Lord. It has to come from the Holy Spirit who helps us. Lord, we thank you for everything that you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining with us today. We would love to pray for you and make a connection with you. So please check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Here you can ask questions, request prayer, find past messages and podcasts, or support Renaissance through online giving. We can't wait to hear from you. 